0: Good evening everyone, thank you for coming. Tonight's speaker is Professor Richard DeMillo. Professor DeMillo is the Charlotte B. and Roger C. Warren Professor of Computing and Professor of Management and Executive Director of the Center for 21st Century Universities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. He has held academic positions at Purdue University, the University of Wisconsin, and the University of Padua. He directed the Computer and Computation Research Division of the National Science Foundation and was the first Chief Technology Officer at Hewlett Packard. Along with many other articles and patents, he is the author of the 2011 book, Abelard to Apple, The Fate of American Colleges and Universities and of a 2015 sequel Revolution in Higher Education, How a Small Band of Innovators Will Make College Accessible and Affordable, both published by MIT Press. Professor DeMillo's lecture this evening was made possible by by the Mellon Foundation, which supports our faculty study group on digital technology, charged with investigating the elements of digital technology, the meaning of the digital technology revolution, and the possibility that some such technologies could be used in our classes here at St. John's. The title of his lecture tonight is A Revolution in Higher Education, Tales from Unlikely Allies. Please join me in welcoming Professor Richard DeMillo.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for the invitation. Um, thanks for giving up your Friday night to, to be here. Um, this is an unusual audience for me, uh, and um, uh, I, I would feel um, remiss if I if I if I didn't talk to you for a few seconds about my my connections, tenuous, tenuous as they are, with with St. John's. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a graduate of a liberal arts college. I graduated from, from a small liberal arts college in, um, in St. Paul, Minnesota, called St. Thomas College. Uh, it's now St. Thomas University. It's gotten much, uh, much bigger. Um, and um, my entire undergraduate experience was devoted to, to the small class discussion-oriented experience that you see uh, here at um, at St. John's. I think the world has moved for St. Thomas, and many of us, um, beyond those days. But um, I was fortunate enough to know for two years the president of St. Thomas College, uh, a bishop named James Shannon, uh, who um, at the time, um, I, I guess I was a sophomore, uh, decided that he would leave the priesthood. I'll uh, presidents of St. Thomas were Catholic priests, uh, and um, and he wound up in this place I'd never heard of before, St. John's College in Santa Fe. And so, uh, I kept in touch with him uh, over the years. Um, I spent my graduate my summers w- while in graduate school uh, at Los Alamos uh, in New Mexico, and, and had an opportunity to 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 visit with uh, with uh, Jim Shannon. Uh, at the time, and and heard about St. John's and and the great books-based um, based curriculum. Uh, I had not thought much about the St. John's experience uh, in the intervening oh I don't know many years, uh, and uh, so I was surprised to get a call from, from St. John's College in uh, in Annapolis, uh, which I knew about because I had been living in, in D.C. for for a while, uh, and. Uh, when the invitation came by to come and address this group, uh, I, I jumped at it. Um, so, with that as background, it's probably worthwhile to start with a little bit of context for, um, for my remarks. Um, I come from, from an institution that to all appearances doesn't look very much like like yours. Um, uh, you're small and private. Uh, we're uh, larger, 25,000 students at Georgia Tech uh, and public. Um, this is a very self-consciously uh, liberal arts uh, institution. Uh, Georgia Tech is very self-consciously not a liberal arts um, institution. Uh, but we do share, I think, a common vision for what education should be. Um, Maybe because I work at a public institution, it hits me more directly uh, than it hits hits many of of you. Um, Georgia Tech uh, is is a unit of the university system of Georgia, uh, one of the earliest public university systems in the country. The university system has 300,000 students um, and a mission that is very different than the St. John's uh, mission. Georgia Tech within the university system uh, has a much more specialized mission. Um, let me just kind of carve out what I think the, the, the similarities and differences um, might be. If you, if you look at the context in which a university can function, um, there is there's a base level of concern for producing um, educated citizens. Um, this has been true since the 11th century, I would, I would say. It predates any, any sense of faculty or programs or, uh, or, or majors. Somehow, somehow we have a responsibility for bringing fellow citizens along this path to understanding the world and therefore becoming more productive members of um, uh, of society, in that we share, I, I think, a common uh, a common mission. Um, layered on top of that, um, there are 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 two things that I think differentiate the institution I work at with with yours. W- one is um, what a what I think of as a legislated um, mission. We've decided uh, as a as a nation, for example. That, that medical doctors should be educated in universities, and so there are universities that exist because they educate physicians. We've decided that lawyers should be trained in universities, so the legislated mission of a university is to train uh, is to train lawyers. Um, the legislated mission um, of a of a seminary is to train cha- is, is to train priests and um, uh, and ministers. And then there's um, there's an economic layer. Um, in, in the environment that I live in, the economic layer dominates, I would say. The, 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 the sense that I work in an institution who somehow has it um, in its core mission to make life economically better for the citizens of the state of Georgia uh, and, and the citizens of the US um, is very much in the air at, at Georgia Tech. It's, it's something that you see in many research universities. So research universities, um, to the extent that, that, that there is a large critical mass of public research universities, have um, a direction that is aimed at, at, at value. We take taxpayer money in, taxpayer money comes back, to society in the form of, of new jobs, new industries, uh, new, new economic opportunities. Um, so when you think about what higher education is, I, I think it's worthwhile to look beyond the boundaries of this campus and to think about the 4,000 institutions that are arrayed along that spectrum. There are maybe a hundred of us which are, by virtue of research programs and size, um, uh, focused, on, on a, um, um, focused on a focused on a mission that is very different than the St. John's mission. Um, there are 3,000 or so other universities that, that vary in size, vary in, in, in student population. But it, when you add up all those students, it's about 25 million students. It's a big number. It's been growing since before World War I. Um, and and um, if I can just take a digression to talk about the economics of higher education, I wanna start with the observation that that growth has stopped. Um, The supply of 18-year-old high school graduates attending college is on a decline. It's actually on a sharp decline. The absolute number of high school graduates is going down. And it's on a 30-year curve to go down even further. Uh, the percentage of high school graduates that is choosing to go to college is going down even faster. So we see this and we see a population that used to be um, um, rich and growing and, and demanding of an education, a technical education from a university like ours and, and, and we see it shrinking both in absolute terms and relative terms. We live by growing. And so, in order for us to just stay where we are, we have to find a way of attracting a larger and larger portion of that shrinking population. If I were giving a talk to business students, I would say, you know, when the market is shrinking, you have to attract a larger portion of the market just to stay where you are. My guess is that this university is also seeing that same trend. Maybe not in those stark terms, but when you look at at the number of people that are likely candidates to be students at this university, that number is going down. That's a worthwhile subject in itself for looking out at the future, and making some projections for what might be what might be true. I I run um, an organization at Georgia Tech, um, which um, which is um, let me let me let me say that I'm a recovering dean. So so I ran an academic program uh, at, at at Georgia Tech. I, I was very conscious of the fact that I had. Uh, the responsibility of not upsetting our creditors, and I had a board that I had to uh, I had to keep from upsetting. I have a very different job these days. So, so my job these days is to forget about all of that and think about what my institution might be like 10 years or more from now. And, and by all appearances, it is going to go through transformations that will take us from a very traditional lecture-oriented curriculum to something that is is unrecognizable in today's term. Students are changing, the science of learning is changing, technology is changing, and more than anything else, the economics of higher education is changing. So let's start with economics. Um, people Look at the American system of higher education uh, with varying degrees of alarm. Some of some of it well placed, some of it uh, some of it misplaced. The point I want to make to you is that is that we have over the last two generations, maybe three generations, built a system of higher education that that is the most imitated system in the world, um, and. We've gotten to that point largely by doing education in the most expensive way possible. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here um, I'm standing here in front of an audience that's largely, largely passive, giving you, giving you a speech. This is what passes for education in most colleges and universities. This experience that you're going through, that you're going through now is what a lecture is. And most college students at most universities go through exactly this experience three or four times a week, three hours at a time for four, for four years. That's the system that's under pressure. I want to talk to you this evening about why, what you might do about it, um, and, and, and how that might impact an institution like this one, which is not based on lectures, which is, not, which is not based on the kinds of experiences that you see in, um, uh, in larger, larger institutions. So let's, let's just step back for a moment and consider the cost of education. Um, in a public university, The cost of education is determined, by and large, by the cost of labor. Labor in a university means professors. You can see, year by year, the cost of running a university, the cost of paying professors in a university, going up at somewhere between two or three times the rate of inflation. Why is that? One reason is that we're part of a larger economy. So when, when, we, um, when we look at the skills that it takes to be an assistant professor at Georgia Tech, we are looking at a skill set that is shared among, among many components of the economy. And um, any high-skill industry that tries to deliver its services to the same kind of population over and over again has to pay people more and more um, uh, every year. There's a principle called the cost disease. It's shared by, uh, the cost disease is shared by symphony orchestras, dentists, um, college professors. Um, The cost disease basically says that any industry in which um, the cost of labor determines the cost of um, cost to the, the, the customer, and which is immune to productivity improvements, goes through this kind of 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 um, of cost increase. It's one of the reasons that healthcare costs are going up at the rate that they that they are. Um, all told, across higher education, your institution included that principal accounts for about a third of fundamental cost increases. It has to be recovered somehow. Um, In the case of a private institution, it's recovered by, by, uh, by increasing tuition. In the case of public universities, it used to be covered by state subsidies to universities. Those subsidies are declining, and so tuitions are going up at state universities as well. About half of the cost increases are due to um, what I described a few seconds ago, the desire of an institution like Georgia Tech to keep growing. This this pressure for growth um, creates uh, a wealth of ideas that should be acted on. Uh, And and the way a university like mine acts on ideas is to raise more money to allow us to to implement those, uh, those programs. And we tend to spend the money that we bring in. But every time you add something new to a university, you've incurred a cost. That cost increase drives up the cost of operating the university. That's about half of the cost increases. And the rest is covered by things that you've read about in the newspapers, fancy climbing walls, uh, um, the arms race to have institutions compete with each other for, um, for, prestige, and status, and rankings. I started looking at these problems um, shortly after I stepped down as dean at Georgia Tech, and decided that I would investigate ways in which we can change the way education is delivered, at least for an institution like ours, to. To account for um, account for these kinds of these kinds of, of effects, um, to some extent, this is a talk about about a particular kind of technology, um, but but it's also in a broader sense a talk about about how we meet challenges in the future. Um, we have a mission. As a public university, to to make college accessible to as many people in the state as we can. That accessibility mission has been with us since the Truman administration. Uh, it's driven a lot of decision making uh, at um, uh, at institutions like um, like ours, um, and and we've been spectacularly successful. Um, the the the. 25 million students that we have enrolled uh, in colleges and universities across the country is four times what enrollment was at the end of World War II. And it's because we've taken this accessibility mission very seriously. We also think that college should be affordable. And that's where this problem that I was mentioning a second ago comes into into the discussion, because that three or fourfold cost increase in tuition has not been matched by an increase in income for the average American family. So, so we look at, 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 at tuition going up at four times the rate of inflation. We also look at family income as essentially flat. That drives a wedge between the accessibility goal that we have for education and what the average family can um, can afford. The third piece of this puzzle is that somehow we have to deliver educational quality. This has always been an issue in this country. We, we've quantified education, we have accreditors, we have people that say that they know how to, how to, how to measure uh, quality, so we're held to a set of standards for, for improving the quality of the education that we deliver at a, fixed, at a fixed price. None of those things can improve simultaneously. And so when people look at the American system of higher education, the this, this system that's admired globally, they see not so much a system that deserves to be admired as, as a set of discrete institutions, many of whom are admirable. So if you want to think about it in terms of, of of, of islands, we have many islands of excellence in the US, but overall, the entire system is on a downward slide toward mediocrity. And it, it would be easy to say that, that there's a single root cause factor for that. I don't think that's true. Um, if you want to, to kind of hang on to something to anchor you're thinking about this, think about the statistic that I mentioned a few minutes ago, that the number of students that are available to enroll in St. John's, available to enroll enroll in Georgia Tech, is going down. And so we have to capture that, that, that group. So the first book I wrote on this subject, was 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 written just because it's what deans do when they step down from positions I, I I had some ideas about what was going on in American higher education and 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 one of the um, one of the principles that I decided to write about was this one I've been talking to you about that somehow there's something not sustainable in what we're in what we're doing for me it's Working in an environment in which you have large numbers of students going through an educational experience, the cost of which is largely controlled by the person at the front of the room whose salary is going up, where the number of people who are able to pay for that service is going down, or if it's not going down, their ability to pay is going down. For you, it's a very high-quality experience that is hard to sustain, given the ability of people to pay, given the cost of delivering that that service. So, is the end near? No, I don't think so. Um, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of um, uh, projections that say that that. Institutions of higher learning are going to disappear. They're going to be replaced by by factories that produce people with certificates. I don't think there's any evidence um, of that, but it is bound it is bound to change. So Abelard to Apple took the point of view that that we have a historical arc. We can look back um, uh, at an 11th-century monk, Peter Abelard, um, a teacher who roamed the French countryside attracting thousands of people to hear his his lectures without the benefit of an institution. And and that's how value was attributed to education in 11th-century France. Once institutions took over, a lot of things happened, um, most of which had to do with enriching the institutions, developing a set of standards, uh, developing a profession um, of, of teaching. Um, you know, by the time the, the American colonies decided to establish their own universities, there was only one model for them to look at. Harvard was a poor cousin of Cambridge. The Ivy League schools adopted the European curriculum. Um, the needs of, of a growing country were sort of irrelevant because there weren't that many people that were going to go to university um, anyway. But there was experimentation. And, 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 and you see this in, in, the, in the history of of American colleges and universities. You see in the early 1800s a big explosion in the number of institutions, secular institutions, private uh, uh, institutions, religious institutions, those who look very much like St. John's, those who look very much um, like correspondence uh, schools. Most of them disappeared, some of them survived. At the end of the Civil War, um, there were dozens of universities that, that all of a sudden had to take in children of businessmen, shopkeepers, lawyers, and give them something that they were able to pay for value. The US government um, said, you know, the needs of a growing country don't have much to do with studying rhetoric or Latin, they have more to do with building machines and industries uh, and teachers. Uh, and so we're going to subsidize American higher education by seeding institutions around the country. The Morrill Act, the, the Land Grant University Act that set up the large state universities was a result, was a result of that. So Abelard to Apple looked at that, looked at that arc from, from, from Peter Abelard wandering alone through the French countryside to American higher education at the beginning of the 1900s and say, well, what is the future of that? Somehow teaching had been lost in that process. Somehow the experience of a student interacting with a solitary professor was no longer part of the, um, of the equation. Uh, and and um, what you see throughout that period of history is, is a coalescing around higher education as it's practiced in the U.S. today. This is, this is a preface to saying this. The way that we practice higher education in this country was determined early in the 20th century. It was determined before there were research universities, it was determined before there was a large influx um, of students. That is the system that's not sustainable. And so Abelard to Apple looked at at the technological ability to deliver an experience to students that was much more like people following Peter Abelard through the French countryside than it was sitting in in large lecture halls and asked what does it take to restore that kind of, of value to to higher education. Uh, the answer turned out to be not so apparent, um, but it did give rise to a set of questions about what universities were doing to project out this um, this sort of future. So around two thousand eight, I started writing a sequel and and The point of the sequel, I think, was to look at what I have thought of as my North Stars, access, affordability, and and achievement, and ask what was being done to fundamentally change the way people looked at at those those attributes of higher education. It turned out to be at exactly the time that technology enabled a new mode of instruction. So I'm going to spend a few minutes just kind of diving in to what I think that technology does for us, and then I'll, then I'll come back and, and talk about where I think we sit, we sit today. There's, there's a paper by um, a University of Chicago educational psychologist named Benjamin Bloom. paper is called The Two Sigma Problem. The Two Sigma Problem is um, to duplicate a classroom experience that does better than this kind of lecture situation. So what Bloom did is he looked at, he looked at the traditional classroom. The tra- traditional classroom is, is a teacher teaching passive students, giving tests, classifying students as succeeding or failing according to those. Um, to those those tests. What Bloom asked would be the difference if instead of conducting a class that way we required mastery of the students of one topic before they moved on to the next topic. He called that mastery learning. And furthermore, what if he did what St. John's does what if he what if he, equipped every student with a personal tutor. Well, the results are that if you simply move to a mastery learning pedagogy, everyone in the class will do better. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. It doesn't matter what you're teaching. It doesn't matter what the underlying abilities of your students are. If you simply adopt mastery learning, then everyone in the class moves to the 70th percentile. That is, you take the average for the traditional classroom, it moves up by a standard deviation, one sigma. Furthermore, if I give you an individual tutor, you move up by another standard deviation. You essentially take any population of learners and move them to the 98th percentile. This has been known since 1983. Why wouldn't you take the large institutions, the ones who have the bulk of the the responsibility for educating college students, institute mastery learning and, and increase achievement? The reason is it's exorbitantly expensive. We come back to a theme that I started with, that the expense involved in doing the right thing in education often outstrips what you can afford do, and, and, and Bloom mentions this in his paper. So he, so he, goes, he goes through all of the, the things that can affect student achievement in the classroom. And the last paragraph of the paper is this kind of plaintive um, um, observation that no society in the world can afford that kind of expense. And he leaves it at that. So that paper has been floating through higher education policy circles for the last 40 years. What does it take to move everyone to a mastery learning environment? Turns out that technology was a way of doing that. So if I can follow the individual progress of individual students, I don't have to have a single summative examination that determines who passes and fails. I can track the progress of each student through the curriculum and move them along at their own, at their own speed. That technology didn't exist in 1983. It didn't exist in 2000. Um, it just barely existed when I started writing Revolution in higher education. And it sort of hit um, the public consciousness like a storm. So all of a sudden, um, Time Magazine, the front page of the New York Times, NPR, is full of stories about massive open online courses and what they can do to education. Uh, and, and there was a lot of truth. There was a lot of myth into these um, uh, in, in these in these stories, the one thing that I think people missed completely was here was a technology that could be used to implement mastery learning. And furthermore, because this technology, digital technology, can be used to personalize the experience, you can get many of the benefits of one-to-one tutoring. So this idea that Bloom had of moving everyone two sigmas in achievement, all of a sudden became something that looked like it might be achievable. Um, so my institution, a few institutions, uh, decided to experiment with this, um, uh, with this technology. Um, we're in the middle of this experiment. Now, my, my organization, the Center for 21st Century Universities, really has a hunting license to try projects, pilots, experiments, um, prototypes, based on implementing technologies technologies like this. I think one of the things that, um, that none of us anticipated was that this technology would also make a difference when it comes to the fundamental causes of cost increases in higher education. Now, there's lots written about why college costs are are going up. Um, Conservative writers say it's because of the ready availability of federally funded grants to low-income students. Other writers say it's because universities have been um, extravagant in their use of resources. I've never thought any of those arguments were terribly persuasive. I've always thought that because we're not profit-making ventures, somehow what we charge students was somehow tied to our costs. And what do we know about costs? We know costs go up because we, as a profession, have been resistant to productivity improving increases. So might this technology, which on the face of it has value in, in, in furthering the Bloom Two Sigma um, agenda, might this technology actually be useful in lowering, lowering costs? Well, two years ago, we started to answer that question. And we answered that question, I, I think, um, in kind of a brute force a brute force way. Georgia Tech doesn't have a school of education. Georgia Tech doesn't have professional educational psychologists. But what we do have is the ability to build things and try things try things out. So so one of the things that we thought we would try out um, was to see whether or not we could actually bring down the cost of education by delivering it in a different way. In a way that was productivity enhancing, maintaining quality maintaining accessibility. At a place like ours, you don't start a project like that by saying, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle undergraduate education at Georgia Tech. We have accreditors that look over our shoulders, Uh, we have a board of trustees that is very jealous of the brand name uh, of their undergraduate degrees, we have um, uh, faculty committees that are very protect- protective um, of curricula. Um, that would not have been a good place to start. What we did do is looked at some place in our curriculum that was in many sense an orphan, master's programs. So the graduate programs that were not particularly beloved by the faculty in high demand Uh, in high demand uh, by students but were still enormously expensive to deliver. So our target was was an online master's degree in computer science. Why computer science? Well, because I'm a computer scientist, because my successor was the dean of the College of Computing, because we thought we could figure out what to do, uh, what to do here. Uh, And because the faculty was more or less interested in seeing how this experiment worked out. So we launched in 2011, 2012, uh, an online master's degree in computer science. Now, this, on the surface, doesn't seem like much. There are lots of online degrees. Um, What made this degree different is that we decided that we would offer it to students for not much more than the cost of delivering the degree. We started with a blank sheet of paper. Somehow, we convinced the the finance people at Georgia Tech and the finance people in the university system administration uh, to start with the same blank sheet of paper. And we built up the cost of offering this degree in online format. This is a degree that costs $50,000 in a traditional format. We thought we could offer this degree for $6,000. And we thought furthermore that we could make this degree from the student standpoint, comparable in terms of learning outcomes, in terms of learning experience, and in terms of job prospects to what they would get out of the bricks and mortar degree. That program was launched in 2013. It was launched to a cohort of 400 students we're now at the start of the third year of this program. Uh, we are nearing 5,000 students in this program. We've started to graduate uh, to graduate um, a steady stream of people with master's degrees. The number of new faculty members that we had to hire to accommodate this nearly 5,000 students is zero. No one's workload increased. The technology did exactly what Bloom thought it might do in implementing mastery, uh, mastery learning. And we know, because we now have experimental evidence, that if you decrease the cost of offering a program, you can pass those savings on to students and decrease the cost of education to your, to your students. So that's the revolution that I'm talking about in revolution in higher education. It's simply this observation that if you change the way that you deliver education and demand the same quality, you demand affordability, you can produce a way of delivering a college education to students that's more, that's more affordable. Where did these ideas come from? They didn't come out of out of whole cloth. So some, some of these ideas came from a basic belief that a lot of us had that, that the experience that we're going through right now is absolutely the worst way to learn. Passive audience absorbing information from a speaker on a stage, even someone as animated as me, is not a terribly effective way to to learn. There is nothing in our understanding of the neuroscience of learning that would lead you to do what we're doing right now. How does learning take place? We don't know all of the details, but one of the things that we do know is that learning takes place in the brain, and it takes place when neurons are stimulated with neurotransmitters, and that causes neurons to be rewired, releases dopamine, which is a pleasurable, rewarding um, uh, chemical that, that reinforces that process, and you continue that over, uh, over and over again. It has to happen in short bursts. It happens in, in five, six, seven, eight-minute bursts. And is rewarded by assessments that 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 either cause the student to go back and try it again, or reward that student to go to go on. Well, that's exactly mastery learning. That's what's being that's what's being um, being implemented. It's also the case that. Um, the way that you engage students in those kinds of environments is very different than the kind of engagement that we're we're going through. Now, these engagements tend to be tend to be active. They tend to be they tend to be stimulative. Um, they They tend to to um, um, sort of contradict all of your muscle memory as teachers. So so we are all, conditioned as teachers to believe that somehow we're in the center of a learning process, that this whole thing gets orchestrated because of who we are and and, and how we deliver material to to our students. That's probably not the case. It's probably more likely the case that students receive all kinds of other benefits from what we do in front of a. Of a class, and we had a discussion at dinner tonight um, about, oh, for example, a long-held belief among educational psychologists that something called psychological distance between students, between learners and teachers mattered. You can see why this would be an interesting hypothesis if you were a teacher, right? If somehow the distance from me to you, the psychological distance from me to you mattered, that makes me an indispensable part of the process. And there are 60 or so years of experimentation that would lead you to believe that that's that's true. It's also the case that none of those experiments had access to other ways of delivering what seems to be psychological. So, so, So one of the benefits of psychological distance or lack of psychological distance is that students get immediate feedback. I ask you a question, you can see my response as a teacher, you take that as affirmation, you take that as approval, uh, and and that's one of the dopamine inducing, inducing cycles. What it doesn't do is account for the fact that there are other things that lack of psychological distance buys you. For example, it buys you currency. It buys you lack of latency. It buys you an immediate an immediate response, and so when you rerun those experiments to see whether or not the presence of an actual human being in front of the classroom mattered, and this is this should be a gasp-inducing statement for you at this point, um, that you don't see that. What you see are the effects, for example, of immediate feedback. This kind of strikes you as 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 a new way of looking at the world. If you're a traditional, traditional teacher, let me let me find for you something that that um, that was sent to me by one of the one of the professors in our online master's degree who was skeptical of this whole of this whole idea. And she said, "The thing that I was most concerned by, the fact that I have no contact." between the students, and that I will feel detached, turns out to be completely untrue. Between our online discussion forums, live office hour sessions, I end up seeing more of the students. They, they end up seeing more of me. I may not know their gender or race. Bobby, it turns out, is a female. And Estelle Ye isn't a Chinese girl with a Western name, but a French girl with a Thai husband but I know exactly how much they know and how they've had amazing progress through the semester from basically no programming skills and ready to drop out to getting a strong A and getting hired as a TA the following, the following semester. And they are not the exception. Lots more stories like this. It comes at a great cost in time, not as bad as I once thought, but still comparable time and effort as teaching a regular class. I expected it would be less because I'm delivering online since the lecture part wasn't there. But I feel what makes the program different, what makes the experience so positive for students, is that we, the instructors, do remain very much engaged with the class. And given that it's real money and real degrees at stake, you cannot not do it. So we have dozens of instructors that have gone through exactly this, this process. How do students feel about this? Well, it so happens that one of the courses in our master's program in computer science is an artificial intelligence course. And one of the instructors, a professor named Ashok Goyle, um, was part of the IBM team that built Watson. Everybody knows Watson, the, the artificial intelligence program that won um, Jeopardy, was it? Um, and Watson has been applied in lots of different areas. It had never really been applied in education before. So what Ashok d- did was he spent two years surreptitiously training a version of Watson. He called it Jill Watson. And then last spring... He inserted Jill Watson into the cohort of teaching assistants and just sat back to see what happened. Now, these were students in an artificial intelligence course. You would have thought that some of them would have had the idea that Professor Goyle is somehow messing with us and maybe there's an AI among our teaching assistants, but it turns out that none of them did. There's a few emails that are suspicious, but for the most part, and students didn't know what was, what was going on. And so Jill Watson dutifully performed alongside Bill Jones and, and uh, Lynn Lee and, and all the other teaching assistants for the entire semester. And because we do evaluations of our teaching assistants, Jill Watson got evaluated along with everyone else. And of course, the students had no idea. What the students knew about Jill Watson was that Jill was always available. So this idea of psychological distance was something that that they felt palpably, even though there was no human being at the other end of the the line. Jill was never cranky. Uh, And Jill knew when to hand a student off to a human being. So Jill knew when the limits of her knowledge were reached, and because she had a large database of, of questions to rely on, she knew who to hand the next question off to. Well, this is the kind of experiment that in the 1930s you would have liked to have had when people were investing enormous amounts of, of um, of research money uh, into things like effective learning, into the very notion of psychological psychological distance. These things happen over and over again as you work your way through these through these programs. Um, so, let me give you one more example. It was, it was, it was something, something fun that happened at, at, at dinner, and, and I just I want to tell you about it. So um, if, you, if you think about what we're doing in computer science, it's easy to say, well, computer science is this strange field that, that is maybe susceptible to, to this kind of, of teaching methodology. But it's certainly not true for humanities, It's certainly not true for the natural sciences. Well, it turns out that it is true. So one of, our, one of our online courses uh, that we offer to undergraduates is, is a Physics 101 101 course. Now, Physics 101 is interesting because it's a mastery course. You have, there are skills that you, have to, um, that you have to demonstrate. But it's also a course that seems to be highly tied to interacting with physical objects. You know, when you, when you go to... A chemistry lab or a physics lab, it's generally in a dusty basement of a building someplace, and there are batteries that make sparks when you connect wires to them. How do you how do you duplicate that process? How do you duplicate the smell of the smell of chemicals? Um, I think it was believed for a long time that if technology had any role to play there at all, it would be in somehow like a really high-quality video game giving you a high-fidelity simulation of what it's like to be in a physics lab. Maybe have three-dimensional batteries that you can pick up and, and move around. It turns out that that's not a very good idea. Students see through that very, uh, very quickly. They don't learn very well in that kind of environment. But if you step back from what it means to be a physics lab, a freshman physics lab, and say, you know, really what you're trying to do is give students the sense that they can interact with the real world and discover basic physical principles, then all of a sudden there are many possibilities that don't have to do with simulating sparking wires and batteries. The professor who teaches this course, um, full professor, Physicist at Georgia Tech named Michael Schatz said, Well, I'm going to take this idea of, of interacting with the real world quite literally. And, and I'm going to call this course The World is Your Laboratory. And so, so what he does, for example, is send students out with, I don't have my iPhone in front of me, but with their iPhones, with their, with, with their cell phones to take videos of each other. So, for example, In the module in which he's teaching about Newton's equation of motion um, for a body freely falling in a gravitational field, where in a traditional physics lab you would be rolling ball bearings up a plywood, plywood plane, he sends students out to take videos of each other shooting basketballs. And so hundreds of students shoot each other making basketball shots You know, the ball goes like this. Those videos get uploaded to a processor. The processor creates a clickable file which is downloaded to the students. And the students, by clicking on the trajectory of the basketball, can vary the angle of release of the basketball, the velocity of release, the distance the basketball has to follow, can even vary the gravitational constant and they can derive the equation of motion for Newton's equations. And he does this for every subject in introductory physics. So forget about the notion of psychological distance, the notion that you somehow have to adopt the methods that are hundreds of years old in interacting with the world. That assumption also changes. So these experiments are ongoing. Um, you know, I, would, I would like to, to stand here today and say, we know exactly how this is going to turn out over the next 20 years, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be true. But I'm more optimistic today than I've ever been um, that what we as a public institution can deliver uh, to the citizens of the state of Georgia, um, U.S. citizens, the people who come to us, as students can be delivered uh, in the most high-quality way in an affordable way by these kinds of by these kinds of, of innovations. Um, so I promised myself that I would end this talk with with another little historical historical sidebar. So so where where does where does this conviction that somehow we have moral responsibility for making Education available to as many people as possible. Where, where does this where does this come from? It turns out, it turns out that it just barely failed to make it in the U.S. Constitution that, that we would have as a society a moral responsibility to do this. So John Adams, everybody knows John Adams, um, was um, by all accounts the sole author of the constitution of the commonwealth of massachusetts if you read the constitution it bears john adams handprint it's his prose you read his letters and it's it's the same it's the same john adams and buried within the massachusetts constitution is something called paragraph six Paragraph six says, quite literally, that the people of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts have a moral responsibility to cherish their academic institutions. And because he was John Adams, he said, especially the institution in Cambridge. But it's not only Cambridge, it's not only Harvard that he's he's talking about. He's talking about the moral responsibility that society in general has towards this institution. He says cherish. He says that we have a responsibility as a society to make these institutions part of our our fabric. And, And in return, the institutions have a responsibility to act ethically. They have a responsibility to provide a space for inquiry. They have to have a responsibility to provide places where people can come to better themselves as as citizens, that has been a driving influence for a lot of this. A lot of this. This work. I, I. I can recall the day, that that I became convinced that I wanted, to kind of leave my technical work for a while. And and undertake this kind of, um, this kind of inquiry. Um, it was early, in 2012, and and the um, the first round of of companies that were developing massive open online courses were just being formed. Um, I I, I had gone to visit uh, uh, Sebastian Trun. So Sebastian Trun was one of the founders uh, of the the MOOC movement. He was a Stanford professor. Decided that he would leave his tenured faculty role at Stanford to deliver education in this this new way. And, And Sebastian opened a laptop computer and said, read these. And there were hundreds of emails from students that didn't have access to education before. And they all said basically the same thing. You know, there were differences. There was a soldier in Afghanistan, there was a single mother uh, in uh, in central Indiana, Uh, there was a a high school girl in Lahore, Pakistan, but they all said the same thing. This is not something I would have had access to beforehand. And, And as I made contact, with the other companies that were building these, these systems, um, I read hundreds of emails. Today I've read thousands of these, of these emails, and they all say basically the same thing. I now have access to an education at a quality that was unimaginable before. And we know that the data bears this out. There's a study by Josh uh, Goodman at Harvard Kennedy School, it's just coming out now, that looks at the expanded access to graduate education um, uh, in computer science due to the Georgia Tech online master's degree. This single program, kind of with humble beginnings and modest uh, expectations, has expanded the national capacity in graduate education by 10%. That's a big number. And as you look at the people around the country that would have benefited from access to education, undergraduate education, graduate education without these kinds of programs you ha- you're, you're sort of drawn drawn into this this discussion what can we do what can we as a public institution do to expand that primary mission of, of public universities? Um, so I I want, to, I want to finish, I, I, I think I have to say something about innovation um, because, because there's, there's an underlying, um, um, there's an underlying principle to how this kind of innovation takes place. Um, some of you know the name Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller was one of the leading lights uh, intellects of the, of the 20th century. Um, uh, known for, among other things, an uncanny ability to understand how large organizations change. And higher education in the US is a large organization. And Fuller said, the last thing that you want to do when you have an ocean liner steaming across the ocean in a straight line, uh, the last thing that you want to do to get it to change direction is to push on the bow. The last thing that you want to do if you want, if you want a Georgia Tech to change, if you want, if you want any institution of higher education to change. The last thing you, you want to do is to confront directly the things that a university is doing. What you want to do is create a small experiment. What you want to do is create what's called a trim tab. This was an analogy that Fuller loved. A trim tab is a small piece of metal on the rudder of a ship and the way a trim tab works is that you move this small piece of metal it creates a region of low pressure and because the ship is moving with such momentum in a forward direction that region of low pressure grows exponentially and draws the rudder in which turns which turns the ship and i think there's an object lesson there for those of us who are thinking about where is all this going in the future where is all this going over the next the next 10 years. What we need are much more experiments like the ones that we saw in the US in colonial times. We need many more institutions with weird missions. We need institutions that are trying things experimentally. We need institutions that dare that dare to fail, because those are the kinds of experiments that, that are gonna draw people, that are gonna draw people, people in. You don't win the day in these kinds of revolutions by directly fighting the existing order. You simply make the existing way of doing business obsolete, and that draws everyone, everyone in. So I, that's my message for you today. Um, yeah, I, I think we're going to have discussions um, in a little bit so we can, we can chew on some of, these, some of these topics, and I thank you for your attention.